This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we talked to RNZ's chief executive about putting right what went wrong, according to the independent inquiry into what he called pro-Kremlin garbage, something incidentally the inquiry panel didn't really approve of. The independent review panel is entitled to its opinion on my use of language, and it was strong language. My view of what happened and the panel's view of what happened is the same. The editing was inappropriate, it affected the balance. But first, the big budget party political road rage that broke out over pre-election promises of billion dollar roads. But the emissions they might create were mostly omissions in the coverage. National says we must be more forward thinking about transport. Its new $24 billion roading election proposal promises four-lane highways between Tauranga and Whangarei, a $5 billion public transport plan in Auckland, but scrapping light rail to the airport. It wants to dump Let's Get Wellington moving and fast-track the capital's second Mount Vic tunnel. That was News Talk ZB on Monday, the day the National Party announced its transport policy, largely a reboot of its former Roads of National Significance plan from the past. But leader Christopher Luxon went all the way back to the 1960s for inspiration when he was questioned on the timetable. Are you confident that you can really hit Absolutely. the road running that quickly? Absolutely. That's why I put it to you. You know, John F. Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, and people landed on the moon in nine and a half years. And we have a habit here in New Zealand of spending 25 years talking about things and not actually getting things done. However, Christopher Luxon also insisted this was a transport plan for the future. Leader Chris Luxon says things have to change. We cannot continue to run the country like it's 1975. We need to think about a country we want for 2050 and beyond. Though critics of his plan pointed out that planning the future around cars and roads and trucks like this was really giving 1975 thinking yet more roadway. And by 2050, we've committed to be carbon neutral by law. And this plan could only boost the fastest rising source of carbon emissions over the past 20 years. More on that aspect in a minute. But it was bickering about the funding and financing of the big new roads plan that was the media's main concern after the announcement last Monday. Transport Minister David Parker says the roading proposal is short by billions of dollars. They've also got form in this area. As we know, when they were last in government, they uh, funded some shiny highways, but uh, they did it by not funding maintenance, uh, and we're still bearing the consequences of that. But in fact, even before that policy was unveiled, TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay was telling viewers this last Sunday. One News has obtained official figures that show these cost estimates are too low. For example, National says that Walkworth to Wellsford will cost $2.2 billion, but officials say it could cost up to $4 billion. And viewers wondering where those official figures might have come from could put two and two together later in her report. In a statement, the Transport Minister says these numbers are breathtakingly misleading from the National Party, saying the numbers are old and woefully light, and labels this plan laughable. Well, the next day on News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking Breakfast, sponsored incidentally by a retro racing car from 1988. The Mike Hosking Breakfast with the Jaguar F-Pace SVR 1988 edition. Christopher Luxon began by reciting his vision for Wellington. Imagine going from Wellington Airport through a second tunnel, uh, which gives four-lane capacity through there. But he then came unstuck when Mike Hosking followed up by asking... What's the cost and the time frame on Mount Vic? Uh, well, the cost on that one is... Uh, I haven't got that right before me, but I've got that in detail. But it's, um, we've got... Uh, I Mike, I've got that detail right in front of me. Uh, Mount Vic is... It's about $2.2 billion, um, and we want to get going with that pretty quickly. And 
started out all these details, about 30 projects in front of me. Well, it was awkward, but just a live radio flub, so no big deal. Well, it certainly was to the Herald's deputy political editor, Thomas Coughlin, who called it a low point in Nationals Day and the most excruciating 20 seconds of Christopher Luxon's life. Though John Key had plenty of on-air brain fades when he was Prime Minister, and he got elected three times. Now, on Monday, David Parker, for Labour, told the media there was a $2.8 billion hole in the National Party's plan, and on News Hub at 6 on Monday, the host Mike McRoberts asked Lloyd Burr for a verdict. The figures that they used in their costings actually came from David Parker's office in a parliamentary written question from three weeks ago, and they're right. I've had a look at it, uh, and that's the information that they got from David Parker. But looking at it, it's actually uh, from 2021. So the figure they got was from 2021. David Parker came out today and said, well, actually, I've gone to Wakakotahi and we've revised it up. It's no longer $721 million, like I told you three weeks ago. It could be as high as $2 billion, so a significant increase there, more than doubling of the cost that he sent them. Uh, A lot of squabbling today over the battle of the billions. And what stuff called the battle of the budget holes was already well underway. In the last two elections, Labour used claims and counterclaims about fiscal holes and policies to damage the opposition's credibility. And on Wednesday, the editorial in the Herald said this. All of this is great sport, of course, if one enjoys the political equivalent of tennis, serve and volley, backhand and spin return. Though most ordinary people, motorists or not, would probably enjoy that a lot less than political journalists. The Herald also said in that editorial that, in the end, the debate over figures is a bridge to nowhere, because... Arguing over decimal points months or even years before the first shovel hits the ground is merely hollow dialogue that inevitably slips into a sinkhole of its own making. And the Herald added that for the same reason, explaining is losing for politicians. But explaining is the media's job, and especially when more than $24 billion and the future direction of transport is at stake. Now for the university-funded website The Conversation, senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Auckland, Timothy Welsh, did have a go at explaining how recent big roading projects suggest $24 billion could be a significant underestimate. Wellington's transmission gully, he said, spans 27 kilometres and cost about $1.25 billion, so that's about $46 million per kilometre. The recently opened Aratuhono, dubbed the Holiday Highway from Puhoi to Walkworth, north of Auckland, cost just over $1 billion for 18.5 kilometres, and that's about $57 million per kilometre. The National Party Transport for the Future package said that all this could be funded, though, through reallocated money from the National Land Transport Fund, additional government investment and other innovative funding tools like value capture and equity finance opportunities for local and global investors. On Morning Report last Wednesday, RNZ's deputy political editor Craig McCulloch said that after the fiscal holes rows that blighted the last two election campaigns, there was a proposal to create a costings unit which could independently weigh up the big budget claims attached to big-ticket political parties' policies. There's no chance of that happening this term with the election just months away. But both National and Labour now seem open to revisiting the plan next term. Yes, I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's a good idea, and I've, I've long thought it's a good idea. At last, some cross-party consensus, and some hope for the end of the frequent fiscal hole fever. And for all the bickering over the billions that roads might cost, there's Hayden Donnell now reports, the emissions and climate implications of the roading plans weren't exactly front and centre of the media coverage of them. Climate change is here, it is terrifying, 
and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. That's UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres talking about climate change, which by the sounds of things has become quite an urgent problem. It's no surprise then that the subject was top of our reporters' minds as the National Party announced its policy on one of the country's biggest and fastest-growing sources of carbon emissions, transport. Here are the questions on climate put to the party's top brass as they unveiled their $24 billion transport package in Hamilton on Monday. I'm just kidding, there were no questions about climate change at that stand-up and only one on the topic during a media conference with Prime Minister Chris Hipkins that afternoon. That's a surprise given National's policy is heavy on roads, lighter on public transport and virtually weightless on walking and cycling. Here's Chris Luxon and fellow National MP Chris Bishop discussing it in a video tweeted out by the official National Party Twitter account. I'll tell you a road I was on the other day. Um, I was on. I was up going from Auckland to Warkworth, and I went up Purpoi to Warkworth. Gee, that's a great road. Yeah, I know. And that made a big difference. Well, I haven't been on that one yet. I'm looking forward to it. It's a great road, that one. And then, um, oh, then you know, the Waikato Expressway was another great road that we built in, in the last government. Good quality roads make yeah. a huge difference. Good quality roads, eh? Roads definitely have some upsides. They also have the downside of contributing to the gradual erosion of Earth's habitability. Thankfully, news organisations did start to address that potential drawback as the week wore on. Here's Guy Espiner talking to National's Transport spokesperson Simeon Brown on RNZ's Morning Report. What role does climate change play in your thinking here? I mean, you've got, you're spending billions of dollars on these roads. I mean, does that look a little bit like fiddling while Rome burns? Not at all. I think that what we're doing here is we're saying we need to uh, focus on making sure we've got high-quality, safe, modern uh, roading connections around our country. What ultimately drives on those roads is going to change dramatically over the coming um, uh, decades. Uh, We're going to have hydrogen trucks, we're going to have electric cars in much greater numbers. Brown later got some backup from Dom Kalassi of Transport New Zealand, which lobbies on behalf of road haulage companies. What about the impact on climate change? Is that something that worries you? That has been uh, one of the criticisms of Nationals' policy. Yeah, I'm not sure why it's a criticism, because better movement of freight, which is what these better roads will do, is good for climate. Question asked, question answered, or so it seemed. Other reporters cast a more sceptical eye on those claims. Over at Newsroom, senior political reporter Mark Dalder projected that the highway heavy transport package would generate an additional 327,000 tonnes of carbon emissions. That figure was based on projections outlining the induced demand from the new roads. In short, just as releasing a new iPhone leads people to buy new phones, building a shiny new highway gets people driving and pumping out more exhaust fumes. Over at Stuff, climate reporter Olivia Wannan cited the same effect in a piece casting doubt on the claims that the transport package would reduce congestion in the longer term. And on Radio Watia, Auckland University architecture and planning lecturer Tim Welsh put it like this. So within a few years, we usually see all that excess road capacity taken away, and we're right back where we started, and sometimes even worse with congestion. 
So the better route is to find ways for people to not have to drive uh, and make those trips more efficient so we're not putting as many cars on the road. Under the Emissions Reduction Plan, which is designed to meet the country's commitments in the Paris Agreement, New Zealand is targeting a 41% cut to transport emissions by 2035. On RNZ's Morning Report on Thursday, Welsh told Ingrid Hipkiss spending most of the transport budget on roads wouldn't cut it when it comes to hitting that goal. The aim might be a 41% reduction by 2035 from memory. Uh, is, how, how could we achieve that? Yeah, I mean, the only way to reduce emissions and reduce congestion is to offer alternatives. So we have to give people another way to get around cities that's not driving. We haven't heard uh, from, from Labour in terms of their transport policy yet, but are there any, has anyone got a plan on the table now that could achieve that 41% uh, reduction in emissions by 2035? Yeah, I mean, I don't see a policy that has a clear path yet. On his podcast, The Car Cup, Bernard Hickey was more blunt, saying National and likely Labour, if they ever announce a policy, are ignoring those climate obligations. In his eyes, that could put the country at risk of failing to meet its obligations under the Paris Agreement, something the Treasury says would cost us $20 billion. In this transport policy, there is no suggestion of extending government subsidies for electric cars and no credible pathway to reducing emissions in the way that we're required to under the Paris Agreement. Uh, the government, the Labour government, has accused the opposition not of getting its climate policy wrong, but of planning to spend too much money. Now there's an argument that at least part of this is moot. Transport is in the emissions trading scheme and its advocates point out that any extra carbon pumped out by the new highways should be offset by cuts in other sectors and what's known as the waterbed effect. Others argue real life doesn't always perfectly align with those sorts of models and the ETS may not fully compensate for structurally embedded emissions from stuff like roading. No matter what, it's an important discussion and arguably one that should be front and centre whenever our parties announce policies which impact on climate change, which is actually just about all of them. The coverage we got on the climate effects of National's transport plan was genuinely illuminating and, in the end, relatively extensive. But it was often shunted to the end of bulletins, the last question of interviews, or to analysis pieces in slightly more niche publications. Our major news organisations have all acknowledged that human-caused climate change is real. They've called it the biggest story in the world. It would be nice if that was reflected in their editorial practice when the rubber meets the road, or the four-lane highway from Whangarei to Tauranga. Hayden Dinell there on emissions being mostly an omission in most reports of the rows about building billion-dollar roads. Uh, Radio New Zealand digital journalist has been stood down after it emerged they'd been editing news stories on the broadcaster's website to give them a pro-Russian slant, which is kind of disgusting, and you'd never get infiltration like that on seven days. Our security is too strong. It's strong like a bear, strong like the glorious Russian state and its leader Putin. Our security is not weak like the West. Pull it back, pull it back. Yeah, Yeah, look, coming a bit I just read the words. I don't know what I said.
That was comedian Jeremy Corbett on the TV Channel 3's weekly news quiz Seven Days back in June after it emerged that international news agency stories had been inappropriately edited by a staff member at RNZ. Initially, it was pro-Russian perspectives and a little loaded language inserted in stories relating to the war in Ukraine, which got spotted by RNZ website users overseas. At the time, Chief Executive Paul Thompson even called this pro-Kremlin garbage, and that made some headlines, and politicians demanded answers about why RNZ might be carrying what they called foreign propaganda. At the time, RNZ tightened editorial checks and stood down an online journalist who'd been working remotely, and the suspended journalist, who later resigned, told Checkpoint that he'd edited news reports in that way for about five years, and no one had ever queried it or told him to stop. RNZ then audited the stories edited by that staff member and eventually discovered 49 that they deemed inappropriately edited. And then external experts were appointed to look at the problem and how RNZ should respond. Well, taking all this a bit more seriously than seven days at that time was Brent Edwards, a former RNZ news gathering chief who's now political editor at NBR. I technically had no responsibility whatsoever for what, what went on the web. That's completely separate. Digital is separate from news. And it was always the point of mine, I thought, that that news should have run digital, that it should have been one single sort of organisation. And so, I I mean, I think that partly plays into it. And I would imagine from this panel that's set up, maybe one of the recommendations they might make would be that digital should be integrated as part of the, the news division and therefore a lot more editorial control than imposed on what goes on the web. Well, this week, that expert panel reported back, and that was indeed a key recommendation of their review that RNZ says has so far cost the thick end of a quarter of a million dollars. On Checkpoint, RNZ's chair, Dr Jim Mather, said it was worth it, though, because it sets out how RNZ could fix the problem for the future. But the problem wasn't just one person, as the panel put it, breaching trust and damaging RNZ's reputation for accurate and balanced journalism. The panel said that busy, poorly resourced digital news team members were not adequately supervised or trained. Outdated technology, organisational silos and a lack of trust between the digital news team and the main newsroom were also cited by RNZ staff the panel spoke to, and all these, the panel said, were factors that reduced the oversight of editorial standards. Indeed, the report also says that the journalist responsible for the inappropriate editing also twice suggested himself that additional positions would ease the workload and improve online news at RNZ. One was the creation of a check sub, a sub-editor who could assist with final oversight and editing of content before publication. The other was the creation of a specialist world news journalist who could oversee all international coverage. In both cases, one of the key factors cited in not proceeding was a lack of funding and resources. And on RNZ's checkpoint last Thursday, the host Lisa Owen asked the chair, Dr Jim Mather, had RNZ effectively let down its former staffer. Is he the full guy in this? Uh, Lisa, I never want to find uh, an individual to um, um, lay responsibility uh, with or, you know, identify a full guy. I have uh, empathy for the uh, journalist and his situation. Uh, he felt that he was doing the right thing. He'd been doing it for a long period of time. Uh, the report clearly identifies he didn't receive the uh, required level of training, support and oversight. So I think there's some significant questions that we as an organisation do need to be asking ourselves 
But not so forgiving was the co-editor of Newsroom, Mark Jennings, when he appeared on RNZ's Morning Report on Thursday. I was also surprised with the sympathy the panel showed for the journalist who caused this incident. Um, They seemed to believe that he was a misguided soul with no deliberate attempt to breach um, editorial standards um, and that he wasn't um, inserting his own opinions uh, with pro-Russian propaganda. Yeah, he, he was inserting his own opinions. I've got no doubt about that. I mean, Thompson did say it was pro-Kremlin garbage, and that, according to the panel, was unhelpful in maintaining trust. Um, And Mather said that the incident had eroded public trust, uh, and he he was extremely disappointed. And it wasn't just pro-Kremlin. It was pro-China, it was anti-America, and it was anti-Israel. I think the criticism of Mather and Thompson uh, was unjustified. What were they supposed to do, try and spin this? Well, then they would have got hammered. Well, RNZ said this week it has accepted all the panel's recommendations, some of which it says it was already implementing, such as a new role focused on editorial standards and building trust and updating in-house editorial technology. But there's more, and it all falls to RNZ's CEO and Editor-in-Chief Paul Thompson to do the putting right. It's 49 stories. Um, interesting, the independent review panel felt we didn't probably need to correct, in their view, as many as we corrected. So yeah, what we do you make of that? That some of them, an un- unspecified number of the 49, they felt were not necessarily inappropriate? Well, some of them, it was very obvious they were inappropriate. Some of them, they were more finely balanced. And I think the report even says that the panel itself didn't agree on all of the ones that should have been corrected. So there's a degree of subjectivity in the margins for some of these things. As Editor-in-Chief, we're responsible for correcting the things that we felt we needed to correct, and it was 49 stories in our view in the end. In the end, are you concerned that RNZ's reputation has been lowered in the eyes of either New Zealanders or even the likes of Reuters? People overseas will be reading about this and reading about Reuters, RNZ being an organisation at which such things can happen? Uh, That has to be a concern. We actually have really high editorial standards across the board at RNZ, and the independent review panel goes to some lengths to kind of affirm that. So when there is a breach, it really hurts. Going backwards a little bit in the estimation of some of the public, but I do think that inappropriate editing, while serious, does need to be kept in context. It was, you know, 49 stories in the end. It was one person. I think the recommendations are positive. And if we get uh, that those things in place and actually look to really um, do better in those areas, I think that the trust will be there. You yourself were criticised in the report for possibly amplifying the perception the trust had been damaged, using that language, pro-Kremlin garbage. Uh, do you agree with the, their conclusion on that? And if so, do you regret it now? The independent review panel is entitled to its opinion on my use of language, and it was strong language. My view of what happened and the panel's view of what happened is the same. The editing was inappropriate. It affected the balance. It introduced um, unreliable information, and there was um, a pro-Russian bias in the copy. They didn't like the fact that I used a very strong term to describe it. One key change, then, is that they're saying the the same oversight of web news as the main news operation should now be put in place. I mean, 
easy to do that? Is it just a change of the chart? Uh, certain people report to other people and extending people's oversight, or is it actually harder than that? Well, just to give a bit of context, we're talking about quite a small group of people. There's about a dozen web editors, web news editors, who will be coming across to sit within the news team. Um, but you do need to go about it properly, and we don't want to create more problems by rushing it. So we'll get on to that in the next month or two. I do think it's important that the new chief news officer, Mark Stevens, who's coming uh, in about a month's time, has input into that. So we'll get through that in the next couple of months. But Mark does need to kind of be here to kind of help lead it. Well, the report panel made a point, uh, so-called legacy media that had gone digital often had the split initially when they went online. They would have a whole separate bunch of people with the expertise doing it. Uh, But most had moved past that and integrated uh, all their digital news operations and Whatever news, other news operation they have. I mean, did did you not see that as a you know long time editor and editor in chief here that this was something that that was passed at sell by date and you should have responded earlier? We're integrated across RNZ in that everyone works across platforms. So that's how we do podcasts and social media. That's how we have a functioning website. It's not done by twelve people. It's done by all of us. You do it in your work as well. So um, what we're talking about is that function of editing news and the benefits of that being brought together where everyone who's editing news is working under the same direction. You know, that's something which we did need to do. In May, we we wrestled with this and decided it was time to make that change. And within a couple of weeks, we were thrown into this crisis. So uh, I have no problem with that recommendation. Should we have got onto it sooner? Probably. And yeah, I'll take responsibility for that. Well, the report also says that the journalist responsible for the inappropriate editing himself twice suggested additional positions would ease the workload and improve online news. The guy at the heart of the story is saying there should have been more oversight and that he said so more than once. People have uh, views on the area they work and ideas for new roles and boosting resourcing. You know, we have been constrained on funding. We just couldn't magic up those positions. Uh, and even if we agreed with his suggestion, didn't mean that we would have had the resources to do it and it probably wouldn't have stopped him doing what he did it given that he's the one proposing it and he's the one who did the editing. But but in the end though if he said according to the report that he was told at the time the key factors not proceeding with those suggestions of these extra check subs was a lack of funding and resources. I mean in the end is this a product of RNZ doing a digital transition kind of on the cheap but having those big stretch goals meant that and there wasn't the level of oversight that you should have had. Yeah, we, we've always had, in my time here, had constrained resources and constrained funding. And even where we've received funding increases, it's, it hasn't kept up with the real cost of doing what we have always done and then doing these new things. So it has been a challenge and we have been stretched. The counterfactual to that is if we hadn't pushed ourselves to you know, move into those areas, even though it has been hard, we'd be way behind where we would need to be in terms of looking after audiences not only on broadcast, not only on radio, but on digital channels. But, yeah, definitely um, it's, a, it's a fair comment. The good part of that is that we're now, you know, we've now received that material funding increase. It kicked in a month ago, and it will mean that we can resource digital for the first time um, to the level it needs to be. As it's been pointed out throughout this process by some people uh, that it's unusual to have a chief executive who's also the editor-in-chief as you are. Maybe that's because it's a different sort of job at a, as a commercial organisation. As a, as a chief executive, you'd be dealing with all sorts of commercial concerns that you don't have to in a publicly funded organisation. But is that a factor here? If, if the report says training is a bit patchy, the oversight isn't what it could have been, is, is that partly because you perhaps didn't have 
another editor-in-chief may be telling you as CEO, look, boss, this is suboptimal? You didn't have anyone saying that? I don't think so. You know, it's quite common practice in public broadcasters to have the editor-in-chief and the chief executive sitting in one position. It's not unusual. That tends to be how it works. There has always been a layer of executive people, and we've got a lot of editors and program managers and bureau chiefs who... You know, together we're all responsible for supporting our people, training our people and fixing mistakes and dealing with complaints. So I don't think um, it would have been an immediate fix. That That's the met. new editorial standards role yeah, that's, it's, that's proposed. Yeah, it's an editorial director, uh, someone who can live and breathe the stuff, and I think that's a very positive thing. And again, we've got the resourcing now to do it. So that's happening, and also, as we mentioned, the aligning of the uh, web news, the online news operation with the main news operation, as, as the panel has recommended. Uh, another issue they've uh, talked about is balance. Uh, the report says the editorial policy, while strong, uh, needs some changes in how RNZ considers balance. And some of this was gone over prior to the process of the merger, which didn't go ahead, which looked at the existing editorial policies of RNZ and TVNZ. Uh, do, do you agree where it says here, the, the RNZ in the report, the RNZ policy focuses strongly on the need to achieve balance without going into detail about what constitutes journalistic balance? The uh, recommendation that we actually have a look at giving our, all of us a bit more of a guide of what we mean by balance and how you bring that to life in our work is a good idea. Looking at things like not just giving both sides of a contentious argument 50% of the airtime or the word count, it's more around looking at where the weight of evidence is, assessing how uh, commonplace a, a controversial view is in the community looking at what balance means in different formats and news, documentaries, comedy shows. So we can build out a set of guidelines that actually give our, our everyone who works at RNZ more guidance on that. And I do think it's a good idea. And these are times when there is much more contention around uh, particular issues. Um, and I think the other thing that the um, Independent Review Panel report uh, proposes, which is really useful, is this idea of, in effect, doing spot checks of how we're covering particular issues, which we haven't done in the past. So, What, what sorts of issues do you think might be so, worth looking at? Um, I guess you could have looked at our coverage of the Ukraine war. You come in and just do a, a check of how we've covered it. Have we achieved balance? Is there any issue around the sources of material we're using? How is our accuracy? Has there been a pattern of complaints? And I think that's a really good idea. And this is in-house you're talking about? Yeah, it will be in-house, yeah. I mean, you could use outside people and it wouldn't necessarily be a problem if you did, but I'd like to be able to resource that in-house. And that's one of the things the new um, person responsible for our editorial policy and standards would do. The report panel suggests areas to look at. For example, due impartiality in terms of determining the weight to be attached to differing perspectives, uh, determining how representative or widely held key views are when covering a certain story, ensuring that particular views are not overrepresented or underrepresented. I mean, if you start building those into editorial policies, doesn't it open up the opportunity for people to challenge it if they feel that views important to them aren't being adequately represented? As some people have said about those so-called pro-Russian or anti-Western views about the Ukraine war, which ended up in the stories that were at the heart of this review? Well, those criticisms, that feedback's already there because, you know, everyone's watching everything we do and some issues are a particular flashpoint for the community. Um, our coverage of the Middle East would be another example of it. Those debates are already there and I think there is merit and as an organisation, us getting better at getting our heads around how we make sure that we're achieving that balance. Doesn't that make journalists' job harder? Because if they're thinking, well, we have to now second guess 
the amount of weight to attach to differing perspectives, that makes it really hard. Look, we haven't written the policy, so we haven't determined uh, what the changes will be. And we are a, we are a very pragmatic organisation. We couldn't create a policy which would be impossible for our, our staff to achieve. And it may end up being quite a, a simple change. I think what the outcome would be is just a bit more thoughtfulness and a few more tools to make those quite difficult decisions at times around achieving balance. That can be across the day and across a wide range of content or within a particular item. Or I don't think it's a bad thing at all that we give our, our people a bit more guidance there. In the end, the, all the recommendations, more than 20 from the report, uh, some, as you say, had already been things that were considered and possibly already in train. But um, how long do you think it will be, the entire process, for the full adoption of all these things? Is this something that's going to take years? Uh, no, it can't take years. So we'll get uh, some of them underway immediately, and I think we'll be well advanced by the end of the year. Some of them, like putting in new editorial systems, which again is in our plan, um, will take a little bit longer. But I would have thought by this time next year, um, we'll be have completed the bulk of the work across the 22 recommendations. In the end, some people will look at this and say, so much fuss, thick end of a quarter of a million bucks, and it was one person in working in a small area of the organisation. Maybe it wasn't necessary to have this level of uh, introspection and it's something that could have been reasonably easily fixed. Well, I think for very good reasons we decided we'd front up and we'd do the independent review. That's the only way that you can remove any doubt that there's any lingering issues that we haven't resolved. But I could have been sitting here and there would still have been questions whether it all being flushed out. It's all being flushed out. The recommendations themselves... There's nothing dramatic in them. They are sensible. Um, they're pragmatic. And what we need to do now um, is make sure we use this as an opportunity to make ourselves even stronger. That's the only thing we can do. That was Paul Thompson, the Chief Executive and Editor-in-Chief at RNZ, talking to me about the independent external review of RNZ's editorial processes, which was released this week and was prompted by the discovery of inappropriate editing of international news on the RNZ website by one staffer. And there's a link to the full review in the online version of this story. You'll find it on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website. Well, as we heard there, editing of online news will soon have the same oversight as radio news here at RNZ. And as Paul Thompson mentioned, that will happen when Mark Stevens, the new chief news officer, takes over in September, after he finishes up as the news editor at Stuff, where he's worked for more than 25 years. And Mark Stevens replaces the head of news here at RNZ, Richard Sutherland, who left this week, bringing to an end a similarly long career in news. And Richard was also the chair of the body that represents the mutual interests of all the news media, the Media Freedom Committee. We talked about all that with Richard last week and did plan to bring you that this week until that review of RNZ's editorial processes got in the way. So next week we will bring you Richard's thoughts on the state of the news business as he leaves it after three decades and what he thinks the future may hold. Last Wednesday here on RNZ National, I also spoke about the findings of that RNZ editorial review with Mark Leishman on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Knights. And we also spoke about the media here making the most of having the FIFA Women's World Cup on our turf, even after the early exit of the football ferns. And while they say that football is an international language, 
You certainly don't need to know Portuguese to know that this player was feeling pretty bad after Portugal also fell agonisingly short this week. But there was not much sympathy, though, in Palmerston North for their neighbours from Spain, who reportedly told the global sports network ESPN that they left Palmy early because it was too boring. Though some journalists leapt to the defence of the main metropolis of the Manawatu, sort of. You can hear all about that also in this week's Midweek Media Watch on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or it's available for free wherever you get your podcasts. And while the Women's World Cup may not in the end have been great PR for Palmy, the Northern Ireland Tourist Board was working overtime in this film from 1974, which the BBC Archive put out just last week on social media. And in it, the board's boss makes this compelling case for visiting Belfast, even at the height of the Troubles. We cannot guarantee the safety of anybody any more than the Israeli tourist board can guarantee you won't tread on a landmine or the Italian tourist board can't guarantee you won't catch cholera or enteritis or, or the United States tourist board can't guarantee you won't get murdered or mugged in New York. I read last week that there are nine murders a day and a thousand muggings a day in New York. Well, I, I reckon we're better than that. So you're better off in Belfast than New York, are you? Oh, I would say so. You're less likely to be mugged. Well, they didn't talk so much about spin 50 years ago, but evidently they still knew how to do it. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on nights. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.